Hi everyone, I'm Pankaj Mishra and you are listening to the Outliers podcast. It's a podcast, a series of conversations with outliers. I'm really thrilled uh, to be having this conversation with Rahul Vora, who is the founder and CEO of Superhuman. If you have heard of Superhuman, you would know that it's a startup which is building the fastest email experience and the most coveted uh, subscription uh, email service. So welcome to the podcast, Rahul. Hello, and thank you for having me. Uh, let us start from the start. Can you give a sense of uh, you know, your early career or early life uh, and anything in particular that you remember which helped you, uh, you know, shape uh, the future that you are part of now? Sure. So to understand the journey, it's helpful to understand where we are today. Uh, so like you said, I'm the founder and the CEO of Superhuman, where we make the fastest email experience in the world. And what we're seeing is our users getting through their inbox twice as fast as before, replying to their important email sooner, and seeing inbox zero for the first time in years, which as you can imagine is pretty life-changing. So the question is, how did we get to this point? Why is this something that I spend my every waking hour on? And for the founding moment behind Superhuman, we actually have to wind the clock back by about 10 years. In 2010, I started my last company that you might remember called Reportive. And we built the first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users. When people emailed you, we showed you what they looked like, where they worked, their recent tweets and links to their social profiles. And we grew rapidly. And two years later, we were acquired by LinkedIn. Now, during those four years, I developed a very intimate view of email. I could see Gmail getting worse every single year, becoming more cluttered, using more memory, consuming more CPU, slowing down your machine, and still not working properly offline. And then on top of that, people were installing plugins like ours, Reportive, but also Boomerang, Mixmax, Clearbit, you name it, they had it. And each of these plugins took those problems of clutter, of memory, of CPU, of performance, of offline, and made all of them dramatically worse. So we decided it was time for change. We imagined an email experience that is blazingly fast where searches are instantaneous, where every interaction is 100 milliseconds or less, an experience where you never had to touch the mouse, where you could do everything from the keyboard and fly through your inbox, an experience that just worked offline so you could be productive from anywhere, an experience that had the best Gmail plugins built in natively and yet was still somehow subtle, minimal, and visually gorgeous. And so with that, we built Superhuman. So can you now take us through the product journey itself, uh, Rahul? Can you take us through uh, the early building blocks and how they all came together? And uh, what were uh, some of the biggest you know, learnings for you? Uh, were there uh, any failures uh, on the way? Uh, if you were to look at the early stage of Superhuman, uh, how did all the building blocks come together? The biggest lesson for sure from the early years was how we found and built our way towards product market fit. So as we all know, product market fit is the number one reason why startups succeed, and the lack of it is the number one reason why startups fail. 
But until recently, it has been very hard to actually define product market fit in a quantitative way. And this was a big challenge for me at Superhuman, where we were facing a multi-year build, and I needed a way of explaining to the team that we were not ready to launch. So I came up with a framework that we call the product market fit engine. And this engine not only gives you a way to define product market fit, but also a metric to measure product market fit and a methodology to systematically increase product market fit. And I've written all of this up uh, on first round reviews. So I would uh, encourage our listeners to Google first round superhuman product market fit, or perhaps we can include the link in the show notes. But the remarkable thing about this engine is it can even generate your roadmap for you. And that roadmap is essentially guaranteed to increase product market fit. So the question is, how do you define product market fit? Well, Paul Graham, the founder of Y Combinator, would say it's when you've made something that people want. Sam Altman, the president of YC, would say it's when users spontaneously tell other people to use your product. Mark Andreessen has perhaps the most vivid definition. He would say, you can always feel it when product market fit is not happening. Customers aren't quite getting value. Users are not growing that fast. Word of mouth is not spreading. The press we use are kind of blah, and the sales cycle takes too damn long. But you can always feel it when product market fit is happening. Customers are buying as fast as you can add servers. You're hiring sales and support as fast as you can. Reporters are calling about your hot new thing. Money is piling up in your checking account and investors are staking out your house. And as vivid and as compelling as Andreessen's definition of product market fit is, and it is very vivid and it's very compelling, it is still a lagging indicator. By the time investors are staking out your house, you already have product market fit. And so in the April of 2017, I started my search for the holy grail, for a way to define product market fit, for a metric to measure product market fit, and for a methodology to systematically increase it. And I searched high and I searched low. I read everything I could find. I spoke with all the experts. And then I came across this guy called Sean Ellis. And Sean found a leading indicator, one that is benchmarked and predictive. Just ask your users this, how would you feel if you could no longer use the product and measure the percent who answer very disappointed? After benchmarking hundreds of startups, Sean found that the companies that struggle to grow always get less than 40% very disappointed. And the companies that grow most easily always get more than 40% very disappointed. So if more than 40% of your users would be very disappointed without your product, you have initial product market fit. When you look at this model, Rahul, are there things that uh, where it could go wrong? I mean, you know, some of the most scientific uh, models in the world get challenged. So any, any, anything that you would like to highlight in terms of uh, whether it can be overrated or underrated? There's probably a few things I would call out. One is a misconception, and actually you're fine. Uh, and the other is a limitation. So the misconception that I often get asked about is, 
this is an optimization framework. Surely this leads you to a, a local optimum. And whilst on the surface of it, that may seem to be true, if you actually look at real-world practical examples, it never turns out to be true. And so the mm. counter-argument was most articulately written by Paul Graham, who noted that the landscape of good software and technology ideas is not jagged, in that good ideas are often adjacent to even better ideas. So let's say that through this methodology, you had optimized your way to the notion of couch surfing. Well, now you're one step away from being Airbnb. Or let's say through this methodology, you'd optimized your way to Uber black car. Well, now you're one step away from UberX. Well, let's say you had optimized your way to a newsletter and a community for people looking for angel investment. You're one or two steps away from building AngelList. And so fantastic business ideas are adjacent to good business ideas. And because of that, optimizing your way to success actually turns out to work. Now, there are limitations. You can't only optimize the product market fit score. Although if you did, it would actually serve you quite well. There are other things that good businesses need also. A classic example would be the net promoter score. I often get asked, if you are measuring and optimizing this number, should you also measure and optimize NPS? And my answer mm -hmm. is yes, you should. Now you should probably do them in sequence. There's no point building a large word of mouth distribution engine unless you have a product that people love and need, but you do need both. It's not sufficient to only optimize the product market fit score, but it is necessary to optimize the product market fit score. And all things being equal, it's the one I would optimize first. <laughs> That's interesting because I, I've seen a lot of people uh, really stress the whole NPS thing and, and it's quite enigmatic. Which part do you think is enigmatic? The the whole NPS thing. Because I, I remember talking to a lot of founders around here and the whole net promoter uh, thing, uh, you know, the way it was explained and, uh, you know, when when the results didn't happen, you know, they would, so so it, it could be used either way uh, to build an argument is what I mean. I see. In my perspective, the two metrics measure different things as they have different levers that drive them. So let's go back to the product market fit score question. How would you feel if you could no longer use superhuman tomorrow? This is measuring a degree of emotional connection. It is 100% about you how much you like the product or how much you need the product. The other question is how likely are you to recommend Superhuman to a friend or a colleague? This isn't do you like it, it's not do you need it, it's will you recommend it? And both questions have their limitations. And I don't know about you, but I've definitely recommended things that maybe weren't the best products, they weren't that useful but I wanted to seem like I knew what I was talking about or I was just super excited to share a thing really early with somebody else. The product wasn't necessarily that useful. On the other hand, there are definitely useful products that I rely on that I wouldn't recommend to somebody else because perhaps they're too niche or they're too early for general consumption. Hmm. And that's why you really need both. You know, I was very fortunate when I sold Reportive to LinkedIn 
because I got to work for the head of growth for LinkedIn. And both, um, we were talking before the show about Akshay, both Akshay and I were at LinkedIn at roughly the same time. And he'll remember Elliot Schmuckler. So Elliot was the head of growth for LinkedIn, scaled the company from about 25 million members to north of 250 million members. And in our first one-on-one, I sat down, super excited, and I said, Elliot, please teach me everything that there is to know about virality. And what he said was that there's no point trying to optimize for viral loops and viral hooks within the product. You're not going to get it past a viral factor of one. And I said, well, what about LinkedIn? What about Facebook? And he said, take any feature in LinkedIn, even the most viral one, the address book, does not sustain a lifetime viral factor of more than 0.4. Even Facebook in its heyday did not sustain a viral factor of greater than 0.7. And I said, well, that doesn't seem to match reality. And he said, well, that's because what's actually driving the virality of LinkedIn, of Facebook, and frankly, of any mass market consumer brand is real world word of mouth. It's not address book imports. It's not people you may know. It's in conversations like this where I say, hey, you really have to try out Superhuman because it saves me so much time. And by the way, it's awesome. That's how virality actually works. And that is what Net Promoter Score directly measures. It's how likely are you to recommend it? My belief, though, is that there is a step that happens before you're ready to do that. And that's, do you actually like or need, ideally both, like and need, the product you're about to recommend? And that's where my product market fit engine can be used. This this explains it really well. There is a point in time, I mean, you talk about in the blog also, the the first round blog, where you talk about... uh, you know, the launch, the, the time to market, the, the product, bringing the product to market took a long time. Uh, so, and, and before, before you actually discovered the product market fit. So what was happening back then? Uh, are there any particular learning from, from that stage of your journey in building Superhuman? Ah, yes, uh, there are plenty. I'll, I'll pick just one or two. So what was happening back then? Well, first of all, we were continuing to validate the idea. I think we were fortunate that the vision I had of the product at the outset actually turned out to be about 90% correct. The original vision was to build the fastest email experience on the world, on desktop to have it entirely keyboard shortcut driven, on mobile for it to feel incredibly powerful and be able to be driven by single-handed gestures. And guess what? That was the right vision. That was the right intuition to follow. But we were validating it even as early as year number one. So in year number one, and by the way, this is for a product that took two or three years to get to the point where we could even start to charge for it or give it to users. Mm -hmm. In year number one, we were validating this notion. And we actually interviewed over a thousand people who were interested in superhuman. Now, you might be wondering, well, how did you do that? That sounds like rather a lot of time. That would be two or three people a day if you were doing it every single day. Here's the trick. We had a landing page. We had one or two pieces of press that covered in that year. 
that drove perhaps 10 or 20,000 people to the landing page. There's some conversion rate, let's say thousands of people sign up. For everybody who signs up, they received an email from me. Now, it was an automatic email, but obviously it looked uh, somewhat real. Mm -hmm. And uh, I clearly wrote the email, so in, in many senses it was real. And I asked the person who signed up, well, first of all, thank you for signing up. It's a huge honor, and we really appreciate that. Now, I have two quick questions. Number one, what do you use for your email? And number two, what are your pet peeves? What do you hate about it? And many people would reply to that. And then when they would reply, I would always reply really quickly. And then when the volume became too high, my brother, Gaurav, who's now our head of growth, he would reply. And so between the two of us, over the course of that year, we had over a thousand conversations with potential users wow. in our target demographic. And what we learned was that people dislike third-party email clients because the sync is too slow, because the search is too slow, and because they are stable and, sorry, rather they are unstable and buggy. And people dislike Gmail because in general it's too slow, because it's become cluttered and over-designed and stuffed with features over the years, and because it still doesn't work properly offline. And to make it work the way that people want it to, you have to bolt on all of these plugins and extensions. All of which was within the vision for Superhuman. And so we validated what we believed about the product landscape. And that gave us conviction to build for many years. The other question I have about Superhuman is, I mean, clearly it, it is about super experience and you have a super set of users as well. Uh, a lot of time when people think of products like an email, they would think it is for the masses or, you know, what is the growth like, uh, you know, scale. Uh, what? How do you think about user base and, and growing it? What is your uh, vision or ambition when it comes to growth? Before ambition, in my opinion, comes strategy. And so the question that I always ask is, what is our strategy to build a iconic, long-term, enduring business, a business like Apple or a business like Amazon. Mm -hmm. And the step that comes before that, or quite a few steps before that, to break it down in terms of something more short-term, is what would it take to get to $100 million of annual recurring revenue? And one of the wonderful things about charging at the price point where we charge $30 per month is that you don't actually need that many subscribers to be a $100 million ARR company and therefore to be a billion dollar company. It turns out you only need about 300,000 people paying $30 a month to be making $100 million of annual recurring revenue per year and then to be a billion dollar company. And actually, when you get to that level, you'll probably be a two, three, four, five billion dollar company, depending on how the capital markets are doing. Absolutely. Now, why do we pick that as our strategy? Well, because it's the perfect counterpoint to what is happening in the markets today. In the markets today, if you're doing email, you're using one of two products. You're either using Gmail or you're using Outlook on top of Exchange. And both of these are one size 
fits all solutions. Gmail alone has more than 1.5 billion users. And a fun question, I'll give away this secret on air. A fun question that I like to ask interview candidates sometimes is, what do you think? The average number of emails that a Gmail user receives per day is that they actually have to do something about. And obviously, most of the people who are applying for our roles are professionals and they have busy inboxes. So they'll guess something like 100 emails or 200 emails. Yeah. But it's not true. The average is five emails. And so now imagine you're Google and you're a product manager there and you're designing Gmail. And you somehow have to make this software work well for people like you and me. And we get hundreds, if not thousands of emails, as well as for the people who get five emails a day. Well, that is the definition of a one-size-fits-all solution, and it never works well. And so our strategy was to focus and to segment and to segment out the premium prosumer niche at the top of the market. Who are the top few hundred thousand emailers in the world, or the top several million emailers in the world. It's, it's all the same kind of person. And how do we build the perfect email software for them? And this is a good strategy because it's a too small problem for Microsoft or for Google to go after. It doesn't make sense for them to focus on one niche of user. And when you start to look at the things that these users value, it makes even more sense. The things that these users value include speed. They include design. Well, guess what? Incumbents don't do speed well. Why? Because of a massively scaled and entrenched architecture. Incumbents don't do design well. Why? Because they have to build a one-size-fits-all solution and because of internal politics and the sheer number of chefs in the kitchen. And so you end up with the observation that actually going up against incumbents who are building one-size-fits-all solutions is really, really good for startups, so long as it's actually feasible to build the product. And that's the final thing that changed. In the last five to 10 years, it's actually become feasible to build a world-class email client. And before then, it wasn't. Before then, you had to be a Google or a Microsoft or an Apple to pull this off. But thanks to new APIs, thanks to open source, thanks to increasingly powerful end user hardware that folks have, you can now build a you can now build rather a blazingly fast, visually gorgeous email experience. Yeah, that's fascinating, actually. Ram, how does the wait list work? <laughs> I think depending who you ask, this can be you know quite a you know a valuable question. But do you pick your users? And what does it mean to have long wait list? Uh, I understand the aspirational uh, point, uh, which, which gets really uh, highlighted. But what does it really mean? Why is there a wait list? And do you pick users? I think our wait list is widely misunderstood. People assume when they hear the word wait list that we're doing it out of some kind of aspirational reason or to create some sense of scarcity. And nothing could be further from the truth. We're doing it because we are obsessed with making you successful with Superhuman. 
And if we believe that the product is not yet ready for the kind of email that you do or how you do it, we simply won't onboard you. And it's that right not to serve that obviously so many retail locations have and enforce from time to time that we don't usually enforce when it comes to software companies. And what I'm saying is we should. If you really truly care about how your users will feel about your product and you're actually able in some way to predict that, then only onboard the users who are going to perform really well. So I'll give you a very simple example. We don't yet have an Android app. Android is, of course, the dominant mobile platform in the world. Now, it just so happens that amongst early adopters, it's iOS. And so we've started with iOS. That was clearly the right decision for the company. But as it stands today, we don't yet have an Android app. So if you sign up for Superhuman and you need an Android email app to do your email, well, then we're going to say very politely, we'd love to serve you, but we'd prefer to wait. And we'd prefer to wait because we know that it doesn't make sense to use Superhuman by itself on the desktop and some other email client on your phone. So why don't we circle back later on this year when we have a prototype of our Android app ready, we'd love to build the best possible app and to build it with you. <laughs> That's how the waitlist works. Yeah, that that explains. <laughs> you know, before I shift gears and, and get, get to the second part of this conversation, Rahul, one final question on emails and superhuman. Is there a science fiction view of email? Uh, is, is it, what is you know the most futuristic vision of the way email would uh, you know evolve in the years or decade to come? There are also questions about whether uh, email would be killed. Uh, so, what is the science fiction view for you? I think a lot of things are changing about email on a day-to-day, year-to-year basis, even a decade-to-decade basis. So first of all, is this idea that email is dead? Well, nothing could be further from the truth. We send hundreds of billions of email every single day. And that number is growing at 4 to 7% every single year. So the email industry is alive and well. And the second is a logical argument for why emails will never go away. First of all, It's not owned by any one company. It's not like WhatsApp, where there is this one company that's obviously been in the news for reasons both good and bad that own it. And we trust in them to run that company well, to keep it secure, to have it encrypted. Email isn't like that. Email is a distributed tool that we all own and operate. And the second thing about email that's really fascinating to me is email addresses an email address like rahul at superhuman.com. In computer science, we have a name for addresses like that. We would call it an impure name. It's a name that both identifies me and also tells you a little bit about where I reside. Hmm. And to me, that's fascinating because it is the smallest possible encoding of those two facts. Before the at sign, you have who I am. And after the at sign, you have the organization I work for. And no matter what email one day becomes, that concision and clarity of what an email address is 
will always be there. And so I think email addresses are here to stay. Now, as you look at the content of emails, those are also changing over time. And for some folks on Superhuman, we're at the point where 50% of emails turn out to be one-liners, like FYIs or decisions, yes, no, maybe, or things like I'm running late. In other words, email is becoming like chat. And for those listeners who use Superhuman, they'll know that we actually lean into this metaphor. Our mobile app looks and feels like a chat app, like a Facebook Messenger or like a WhatsApp. And as you roll the clock forwards, I think we're going to see other sea changes come to email. We're going to see email become more collaborative and more integrated with the other objects that we use. Way, way back in the day, Outlook tried to mesh email and tasks and notes and contacts and calendar. But I think at this point, we can all agree that it became a behemoth, a monolith, this sort of unwieldy, clunky tool. And the superhuman vision is to take all of these things apart to build finely honed tools that are the best in class at what they do the fastest email experience in the world, perhaps the fastest calendar experience in the world. But then to have these magically and seamlessly talk to each other on the back end. And in the far, far future, you can imagine perhaps one day waking up, your inbox is pre-sorted and pre-triaged for you, and drafts have been written on your behalf, perhaps partly by AI, but also perhaps partly by a person who is learning how you work and is learning your voice and over time getting better at writing these drafts for you. And then all you have to do is make a few edits and those edits go back into training this overall hybrid system. And when you're already clicking send. And we're already at the point today where through the enhancements that we bring to email, Superhuman saves our users many hours per week. And I'm excited to push it to the next level to save the next few hours per week. And that's what I think we'll see heading into the future. Wow. You know, how do you find talent that builds products like these, Rahul? Uh, Can you just touch upon it a little? What does it take uh, to get products like these built? The number one thing is to have a problem worth solving, to have a hard problem. So I'll give you the example of Amuye Reynolds. She is our head of engineering and she's pretty phenomenal. She used to work back at Apple in the Steve Jobs days. And it turns out there are only 14 people in the world who've been making iOS apps longer than she has. She's that tenured and that incredible at what she does. Wow. Now she had 14 or 15 different companies that she was talking to before she agreed to join Superhuman. And when she did, I asked her what changed her mind, what made her pick Superhuman. And one of the things that she said was that the fact that what we were building was technologically very hard. She was done building simple list apps or social feeds sets of objects on the screen. 
And what she wanted was a really tough, meaty, technological challenge to sink her teeth into and to, to really solve. And this idea that you're going to build not just an app, but an email app, which, by the way, is one of the hardest apps of all time to build. And then you're going to build it on the phone. And then it's going to be really high quality. And then not only that, it's going to be the most powerful email app in the world. And then not only that, it's going to be the highest quality email app in the world. I'm basically uncompromising on every single dimension. That was appealing. That was attractive. And that will attract the best talent in any single vertical, not just engineering. The same also applies for Conrad. Conrad is our CTO. And he was the very first person that I recruited to join the company. Now, he and I had the benefits of having worked together for a very long time because he was also the first employee that I brought onto Reportive. And we'd worked together for 10 years by this point. Mm -hmm. When we were at LinkedIn together, he wasn't particularly happy. So as his pseudo manager, I would encourage him to think, well, what is the change that you would like to see in the world? And we both agreed that no matter what we do, the tools that we use are generally bad tools. And that as programmers, and he and I both grew up as programmers, we have this ridiculously unfair advantage in the tools that we use because we are the only profession that gets to build our own tools. How unfair is that? That programmers are the only profession where they make their own tools. It's not true of anybody else. Mm -hmm. And so that's the thing that motivates him, is to build phenomenal tools that help people become brilliant at what they do. And so that's my second piece of advice, which is to really truly understand the fundamental motivations that every person on your team has. And then thirdly, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you have a really tough, interesting technological challenge, if you truly understand people's individual fundamental motivations, then you'll start to assemble a world-class team. And then it becomes self-fulfilling because other great, talented people want to work with that initial set of folks that you've pulled together. Yeah, really well put, actually. Uh, because what you're saying about you know, the brightest talent get attracted looking at the toughest challenges, right? So I, I think, yeah, that, that's the point. Okay, so uh, now, now let's talk a little bit about uh, your journey as a founder and let us uh, talk about what's going around us. And, uh, you know, what, what, what is it uh, like being inside a war room, uh, in, you know, in the middle of a crisis? And how are you navigating this? Uh, what are the key learnings for you? How does it change the future? So you'd previously asked me, there's a lot of anxiety and stress amongst founders. And I think before I jump into what our top learnings are and you know, handpicking some lessons, it would probably be helpful for our listeners to set the stage and to provide context. Uh, so folks may be listening to this many months down the line. This is Wednesday, April 15th. We are in California over a month, probably about five or six weeks at this point into our shelter in place mandate. 
and founders are generally stressed and anxious. And I think they are right to feel that way. Because as COVID-19 runs its course, it now appears certain that we will enter a recession. And I realize that that word, recession, gets thrown around, assuming that everybody knows what it means. But not everybody does, and certainly not every founder. So let's actually define it. A recession is a business cycle contraction with a decline in economic activity. And they generally occur when there is a wide sped drop in spending. And the impact on tech is pretty severe. Now, in normal conditions, software spending increases at around 5 to 10% per year. But in the last two recessions, so that's 2000 to 2002 and 2008 to 2009, software spending was flat or down. And most technology companies in this one are expecting revenue growth rates to decline over the next two years. Now, advertising companies will be the most adversely affected, but SaaS companies will be affected too. And nobody is going to hit their growth goals this year. Every leadership team that I know of intends to rework their plan for the year. And every day I hear of another technology company doing another layoff. Now, folks often ask me, well, okay, how long is this thing going to last? And the general rule of thumb is this. The longer it takes for a crash to reach the bottom, the longer it takes to recover. And on average, it takes about three times as long to recover from the bottom than it takes to reach the bottom from the peak. And as we are not yet at the bottom, it is rather hard to predict how long it will take to recover. But what I can share is that at Superhuman, we are planning that a recession will last for two years in the best case and four years in the worst case. So to the lessons, what can folks do and how should they think about this? So I'll pick one crisis lesson. A crisis that I recall very vividly was the last few months of my last company, Reportive. Now, people generally remember Reportive as a big success. After all, we built a beloved product and we sold to LinkedIn shortly after they went public. But in reality, it was an extremely stressful time, a true moment of crisis. We had raised about a million dollars from an all-star group of investors in Silicon Valley. Growth was good, but not phenomenal. As steady as clockwork, our runway drained away until we had just a few months left. And at the same time, LinkedIn was pressuring us over the use of their API. And on top of all of that, my health was deteriorating. One morning, I woke up with sharp abdominal pain. The next day, I was in hospital in intensive care. My body had given up on me, I know, and was starting to break down. And I stayed in that hospital bed for a week. It took me three weeks to recover. Now imagine being in that scenario. Your company is about to run out of money, you're facing platform risk, and you're hospitalized. What do you do? You recover, you reset, and then you go back at it. So I organized four streams of activity around cost, revenue, M&A, and investment. 
So firstly, I set out to reduce costs in every way possible. Second to payroll, our biggest expense was hosting. In fact, across all of our hosting providers, customers, we ran the largest database. So this was a significant expense. I reached out to the hosting provider, met with the CEO, and asked if they could help. The CEO said this to me, I would love to help, but we've just been acquired by a big public company. If we were independent, I would just say you could have it for free. But as a public company, there's not anything I can do anymore. I'm sorry. So I went back home, my metaphorical tail between my legs. And the next day, I got an unexpected phone call. It was the CEO again. He said to me, come by my office. I have an idea. And so a sleepless night passes. And the next day, I go to see him. Smiling, he said, I was thinking about this. And as it happens... There is a bug in our credit card system. Just cancel the card you're using. And what I think will happen is that we will just try to bill it over and over and over again. <laughs> You've got six months to sort your shit out. Now go and do it. <laughs> and this brazen act of kindness from a fellow entrepreneur and to this day, I've still no idea why he did it. Perhaps he felt pity on me. Maybe he wanted to look after for a fellow founder. It saved Reportive. It bought us the few more months that were crucial for the next three steps. So step two was to pivot the entire company towards generating revenue. Hmm. Our monetization strategy was always going to be freemium we would sell freemium features to a subset of our users. And we immediately started building some of those. And in addition, I added an advertising component. Reportive was already widely loved. Even at that time, we were serving up 20 million profiles every single month in a space where the Gmail ads used to be. So surely we could figure out how to monetize that. And the idea was that in the worst case, we could run our own ads. So that's what every engineer was working on. Now, thirdly, whilst the team was working on that, I worked on selling the company. And we didn't just talk to LinkedIn. We spoke with all of the tech companies you might imagine. Google, Salesforce, Twitter, Facebook. If you're considering doing this, the thing that I should point out is that this is incredibly time consuming and it involves the whole team. If a company is interested in buying you, they will eventually want to interview all of your key people, if not all of your employees. And in these scenarios, you want to show up as best as you possibly can. And so for two weeks, I actually asked the engineers in the company not to write code, but simply to study, to pretend that they were back in college and to read up on how to ace big technology company engineering interviews. And there's a whole art and science to how that you do, do that. And fourthly, whilst all of that was happening, I also worked on extending the runway of the company by talking to our investors. Now, we said that we'd raised a million dollars. That was mostly in checks of twenty-five dollars to $50,000 from angels. My argument to them was simple. If you were to deploy another $25,000, where would you put it? Something completely new or something untested or something that millions of people already love, but which just needs a little bit more time. 
That argument resonated. But here's the thing. I never actually raised the money. In the end, I simply used it to leverage the M&A negotiations. So I would say to potential acquirers, sure, you don't have to buy us right now. And that's fine because all of our investors are more than happy to double down. And by the way, our revenue experiments are looking really promising. And that gave me the courage to hold out with terms that would work for us. And that's how ultimately we ended up selling Reportive at a premium with just weeks of runway left in the company. Normally, you're not meant to be able to do that. You're not meant to be able to sell the company for a premium if the company is about to die. But it is actually possible. And through being canny around cost reduction, through focusing the entire company on generating revenue, through working on selling the company at the same time as building leverage with our investors, we were able to achieve this outcome. And of course, many years later, it then set the stage for Superhuman. Yeah, this was really fascinating, Raul. Uh, and I think uh, there's so many deep lessons here uh, from your last entrepreneurial venture as well. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation, Raul. And uh, I do hope you stay well. And I wish you and Superhuman Godspeed and uh, you know more power to you. Likewise. Thank you for having me on the show. And I guess just, just one final message to any founders that may be listening. This time may seem really hard, but this too shall pass. And it actually becomes a really good time to build a company at the start of a recession. If you look back at all of the greatest technology companies in the world, almost all of them started just before or in a recession. So this is a really great time to be going. Absolutely. More power to you. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you and take care.